So Nick, one of the benefits of doing this podcast is we get to interview a lot of authors on the show, and that means we, we read a lot of books. We do indeed. We do indeed. Which also is a great benefit of doing it is. this show. It is. And just in general, we read a lot of books to, to try to keep up with uh, what's going on and new perspectives and so on and so forth. And so today we're going to share a little bit of that. Yeah, some of our favorite books that we've read over the past year or so, our That's summer right. reading list, which yeah. uh, if you listen to this podcast, you know is uh, not going to necessarily be a light reading list, but still no. enjoyable nonetheless. And uh, listeners, don't worry about writing all this down, all these book titles and author names. We will have all the content in the show notes. We'll also be posting all of these books on our Instagram at Pitchfork Economics, and you can talk to us there. We want to know what's on your summer reading list, so please leave us a comment. Uh, why don't we start with you, Nick? What's at the top of your list that you'd recommend? So one of the really interesting books uh, that I read was by our friend Joe Henrik uh, from Harvard, the anthropologist from Harvard, who wrote... Uh, several years ago, a really marvelous book called The Secrets of Our Success about the evolution of culture. And this book actually was the precursor of that, even though we wrote it afterwards, about the fundamental evolution of human psychology called The Weirdest People in the Weir World. And, you know, at the core of the insight uh, is, I mean, at least the, the biggest surprise for me, Goldie, was his basic insight that um, human psychology evolved in different ways in different places. Right. And, and to be clear, the subtitle is How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and yes. Particularly Prosperous. That's right. And, you know, we take in the West our psychology for granted. And in fact, Almost all research on psychology has been on people who are Western and, you know, people in our sort of psychological group are individualistic. We think analytically. We believe in free will. We take personal responsibility very seriously. We feel guilt when we misbehave. And uh, crucially, we think nepotism uh, is a bad thing, should be, right. you know, either discouraged or outlawed. And we take that kind of psychology completely for granted as just sort of a foundational thing in our lives. But uh, it, but it, what, what turns out to be true is that the majority of people on planet Earth don't think like that. They think a lot more holistically. They identify more strongly with their family right. or tribe. They take responsibility for what the group does. They feel shame, not guilt. And they think nepotism, interestingly, is a duty, not a sin, right? Right. right. You should take care of your nephew. Of, co of course. And I guess, Goldie, it just never occurred to me that people were actually wired that differently. I, I really thought that there were a bunch of fundamental psychological traits that were true for virtually all humans. And of, of course, that, that there are some. Uh, there are no cultures which, right. you know, celebrate murder, um, unless it's to other people that aren't in your group. So, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. Anyway, and, anyway, but I, I know you read the book too. I, and, I uh, did. And, and I loved, and be clear when he says that we're weird, he, he doesn't just mean we're different from, from other cultures. It's actually an acronym 
that has um, started to be used in, in psychology, which stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic. And, That's right. and as I understand it, that, fir- that term first started being used when uh, psychologists realized that the uh, psychological uh, studies they'd done, all the empirical evidence they had, was mostly done with co- with weird college <laughs> students. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so they got certain results that didn't actually uh, hold up uh, in other uh, cultures because, uh, uh, you know, American college students are weird. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, another one of his very interesting claims is the central role that was played by the Roman Catholic Church in prohibiting, like, uh, married marrying your cousins and such, right? Uh, and that that you know it was he calls it an accident that we effectively dismantled kin-based organization, sort of social organization, and that sort of catalyzed a bunch of changes, which included the capacity to cooperate at scale with people who are not your kin, right? Which is the hallmark of successful market economies. But also a a prerequisite for modernity, for capitalism, for the type of of market economies we have today. Yes, exactly. Uh, Yeah. So so I'm going to take off of of that point that – Joe Henrik makes about this kind of accident of history and how it, it led to the modern world. And uh, I'm, I'm going to suggest uh, uh, Walter Scheidel, who I, I believe was on our very first episode yes, of right. Pitchfork Economics. Uh, he had a book last year titled Escape from Rome, The Failure of Empire and the Road to Prosperity, in which he argues that the collapse of the Roman Empire and the failure of any unified polity to replace it in Western Europe ensured a type of competitive fragmentation, both within states and between them, that also was a prerequisite for modernity um, that helped lead to the type of competition and innovation that grew into uh, market capitalism. And that once Europe escaped from Rome, uh, it it was able to launch the economic transformation that went on to change the entire world. And I'm connecting those two because you see how certain things that are unique uh, to the uh, history and culture of a particular region can lead to very different outcomes and produce unexpected results. Turned right. out that the collapse of Rome, uh, we wouldn't have the modern world without it. If we had an empire, uh, we wouldn't have advanced to um, uh, the world we live in today, the prosperous world we live in today. That's It's so interesting. And, you know, um, Walter Scheidel has also been the author of a lot of um, really interesting work on the collapse of civilizations. Right. Obviously, <laughs> and it's, you know, um, and uh, he was on our podcast, uh, you know, uh, talking about the inevitability of that if we don't address the kind of economic inequality that we currently have, sort of a dep- very depressing um well, in that book, he points out that um, we have, it's called The uh, the Great Leveler, and uh, he points out that we've only seen periods where inequality has um, uh, dramatically lessened, 
after uh, catastrophic events like war, yeah. uh, depressions, pandemics. Um, so <laughs> in, a, in, yeah. a, in a way, it's a very depressing book because it, it says that disaster has to strike before we can do anything about inequality. But it's also in the moment, it tells you, and I think we're seeing a little of, of that uh, as we come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, that uh, workers seem to be more empowered, uh, wages appear to be rising. There's, you see a Biden administration uh, that seems much more concerned with these um, the economic lives of working and middle class Americans. Um, so, you know, so, silver lining to the hor- horrible tragedy that uh, COVID has been. Yeah. And so from there, I'd love to bounce to another very interesting book that is an analysis of the shape of Western societies, certainly, which is Michael Sandel's The Tyranny of Merit. Ah, that's on my Um, list too, Nick. Yeah. Uh, Well, we should talk about it because it's a fascinating uh, analysis and attack of one of the sort of base, you know, the most fundamental sort of cultural and social precepts we live with, which is this idea that we live in a world of equal opportunity and those on the top are there because they are the most uh, meritorious, right? Right, That they are the smartest and they work the hardest and therefore they deserve it. Right, this is a meritocracy that we live in. That's right. We live in a meritocracy. And and Sandel's attack is, one part of it is uh, is somewhat obvious. The, 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 The second part of the attack was more of a surprise to me. The first attack, of course, is, the relatively well understood proposition that in fact it's not equality an equal opportunity world at all right that the vast majority of people at the top started very very near the top and virtually no one starts at the bottom and makes their way to the top particularly in modern america and that is particularly true of entry into elite universities which are sort of today a passport to the upper middle class or the upper class but that that difference in possibility manifests itself in a billion different ways. And we've talked about this a billion times on the podcast, how both advantages and disadvantages compound over time. Right. And, and, and that's quite interesting and, of course, um, true. But his deeper analysis, I think, which is more interesting, is that he attacks the concept of a meritocracy uh, in a way that had never occurred to me, which is that in a world where you know, you're never really going to get to equality of opportunity, but you tell everybody that the hierarchy in society is based on merit, uh, particularly in a highly unequal world, you end up creating a society where most people believe that they're not meritorious, right? (laughs) Right? Uh, That they're lazy, dumb pieces of shit um, (laughs) without talent or merit, and the people at the very tippy top must be, and that creates a massive amount of resentment and uh, anger. And, and, and also bad behavior on the part of the winners, because he, he right. points out that the flip that's side right. of that, he says that the, the whole notion of a meritocracy fosters hubris on the winners and, and just inflicts indignity on, on yes. everybody else. Yes. Um, and so it, it creates bad winners uh, That's because right. they, 
it it underplays the huge role that luck plays in the economy right. and in 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 human affairs across the board. And not just luck, path dependence. Right. Obviously, right. right. It, it's not just. It's not. I mean, you know, you can have two people who both grew up in Connecticut and went to Harvard, and one becomes a billionaire and the other doesn't, and that could be attributed to luck. But right. um, but to be clear, if you didn't grow up in uh, Greenwich, Connecticut, and go to Harvard, it's way harder to get to be a billionaire. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, but, but that's part and, of the luck yeah. is being born yeah. uh, in uh, to, uh, to a family yeah. in Greenwich, Connecticut. That's right. That's so, right. So on this topic, I've got other books from, yeah. from the past, which which this reminds me of, which adds on to this. One is Robert H. Frank's Success and Luck. Good Fortune yeah. and the Myth of Meritocracy, which is right. just a brilliant takedown of the whole notion that this is a mer- just an economic takedown, whereas Michael right. Sandel is writing from the perspective of a philosopher. Philosophy, right. Right. And then I'd also recommend, uh, if you haven't read him, just about everything by Nassim Nicholas Taleb, but particularly The Black Swan and Fooled by Randomness which get at these topics as well. I mean, Taleb comes off as just this brilliant erudite asshole, but with some absolutely crucial insights, better read than I could ever hope to be. He's one of the few people, if we ever had him on the podcast, I would be absolutely intimidated to talk to, but (laughs) I love his books. Yeah. Uh, even when I disagree with him, I love his books. He is a brilliant writer, uh, definitely worth reading. And uh, adds adds a lot to this whole topic yeah, of, yeah, yeah. of how you know what we think the economy is and what it really is. Yeah, and yeah. you know, speaking of not seeing the uh, economy for what it really is, Nick, I'm going to yeah. go a little off base here. Not an economics book, uh, but by an author that I know you've read, Robert Wright's "Why Buddhism Is True." Oh, interesting. I haven't I haven't read that. Yeah. And again, not a Buddhist here, but I loved yeah. this book. <laughs> um, uh, according to Wright, at the heart of Buddhism is the simple truth that the reason we suffer and make other people suffer is that we don't see the world clearly. And then he goes on to back that up, not just with his own experiences through meditation and talking to Buddhists. Uh, monks and meditation instructors, but also the latest advances in psychology and neuroscience. And one of the things that appealed to me is the path I've taken with you over the past uh, six years, six, seven years, Nick, is um, one of, uh, you know, seeing seeing behind the curtain (laughs) that that you learn how so much of what we're convinced about how the world works and economics in particular is this total misunderstanding. The the conventional orthodox economic thought is just entirely wrong. And in this book, Why Buddhism is True, that, that insight about how we don't see the world clearly, I think that really applies to yeah. the field of economics. And also helps explain why it's so important to understand it uh, correctly. You get all of those misconceptions and emotions out of the way when we look at economics. So great great book. It's a fascinating read. Uh, A little off my beaten path, though. I read simultaneously Isabel uh, Wilkerson's Uh cast 
and John Meacham's book, His Truth is Marching On, about John Lewis, uh, the civil rights activist and congressman. And I didn't mean to write, read them at the same time. Uh, I listened to one and read the other. But it was a great experience because uh, Cast is a book about, I mean, obviously, these books are both about racism. Cast is a more analytical uh, look at the history of American racism and the way in which we have built uh, fairly deliberately a caste society, not unlike India's mm -hmm. uh, for black and brown people in a very deliberate way. And there are some absolutely terrifying explanations of the ways in which the Nazis used the strategies that uh, the, the, the Jim the, Crow the, laws in the South. Yeah, the Jim Crows in the South as a way to validate uh, the final solution. It was just in, the, terrifying the, and it, depressing. It, yeah, there's anecdotes in there that actually uh, the Nazis thought they the American South went too far in some ways. Yeah, they, exactly. They couldn't. I mean, yeah. obviously, the Nazis right. went pretty far, but in legalistic terms, they didn't. They could, couldn't quite bring themselves to reproduce That's the right. but, apartheid of the South. Yeah. But, you know, in, in both explanation and in, you know, sort of description and narrative, uh, she paints this really horrifying picture of racism, particularly, mm -hmm. you know, in the South in the old days, um, although it was, you know, all over the country. And then simultaneously reading John, about John Lewis's story, right, his experience of that reality. Right. Like, so you have this overarching description of these modalities of oppression that are going on. And then John Lewis sort of living through it and fighting through it uh, was just absolutely amazing. And of course, John Lewis was an astonishingly capable and brave human. And, you know, his personal story is really one for the ages. I wish I'd gotten to meet that guy. So, so Nick, I'd like to add a third book <laughs> okay. uh, to those two, and that is Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, What That's Racism right. Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, and where um, I think those first two books chronicle the long and pervasive history of racism in America, mm -hmm. much of it economic, and, and how it persists today, uh, Heather McGee goes there and she talks about really how it impoverishes all of us to this day, how much, right. how much racism is costing us uh, both individually and as a society, and how much more prosperous we would be if we could uh, address this, you know, our historic, pervasive uh, institutional racism. That's right. And this is the central argument that we make on how market economies actually work, right? right? Which is that the more people you fully include in them, the better they work. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Which means that if if black people had as much money on average as white people, the economy would just be dramatically larger, which would be good for everybody, right? Like it just it's just really simple. It's just a very simple notion, but there are so many embedded um, obstacles to making that a reality that, it, you know, it's just very hard to get there. But um, yeah, absolutely awesome. Okay. So your, your turn now, you got another book? Yeah. So let's jump from 
uh, sort of institutional racism in America to global geno- genocide. <laughs> oh, that's for a little light summer reading. If you want to, yeah, if you want to even more depressed, um, I'm about a third of the way through this fascinating book, which is not new. Uh, it's been out for some years, but really worth picking up called 1491 by um, Charles Mann. Uh, I'm not sure if you've come across it, but yep. it's basically analysis of the world pre-Columbus. And the short story is that the best data indicates that before Europeans arrived in the Western Hemisphere and North and South America, there were a hundred million people or something like that who lived in these places and had rich, complex cultures and built great things and had really interesting societies and were wiped out by the diseases of the old world. You know, like 95, 97%. Disease, war, slavery, et cetera. But much of it, much of it disease, like 90% of the population is wiped out uh, across South, Central, and North America. That's right. And that, you know, our view of these people as primitive is a consequence of the fact that their cultures were destroyed before we got to look at them. (laughs) You know, although Cortez got to see the Inca, uh, you know, by the time he left or some decades later, all of these people were wiped out. Like, you know, smallpox would hit one of these cultures and kill 95% of the people. Same with influenza. One One of the interesting scientific findings is that the folks in the new world were super susceptible to diseases of the old world in two ways. They caught them easier and then they killed them more, both, because they right. had no, because they were uh, genetically more homogeneous and they had no experience, you know, that there was no biological experience with these pathogens. And so, um, so it just absolutely wiped them out. And of course, as you said, Goldie, these diseases destabilized these cultures, which created wars and so on and so forth. And so we are left with, in some cases, some archaeological remnants, but no real picture of what was really going on in the past, uh, except the growing awareness that there was a shit ton more going on than we give it credit for. And that the world, that the natural world that we look at as pristine, in fact, was terraformed by people for way right. longer than we thought. Right. What else you got, Goldie? What else do I have? Okay, well, getting back to uh, to American history when U- Europeans arrived, this, I guess, I read a couple years ago. I love this book. It's uh, by Matthew Stewart. It's called Nature's God, The Heretical Origins of the American Republic. Uh, in which he dives into uh, a lot of those words and phrases uh, that you uh, recognize from the Declaration of Independence and other founding documents, words, phrases like nature's God or self-evident. And uh, he reveals their provenance and their true meaning. And he also, and this is, you know, as, uh, uh, as somebody who loves history books, he also uh, reveals the really strange, unusual, and unheralded contribution of Ethan Allen. Uh, Didn't he make furniture? Yeah, no. But that's how we know him as the name of a a chain of furniture stores, Ethan Allen and the the Green Mountain Boys. 
but what a rich uh, ideological thinker he was and how he he contributed much to um, the thinking of the or, or, and the of the early republic and uh, uh, and reflected it so it's a it's it's a bizarrely entertaining fascinating uh, history book interesting as long as i'm i'm recommending history books here Nick, yeah. Uh, let's be clear to the audiences. There's, I'm a very slow reader. There's no way I can actually read all these books. Much of many of the books I read, I'm listening to as audio books. Yeah. Uh, many of them uh, downloaded from the library. And so, completely off topic. You want something light and entertaining from my perspective? Winston Churchill's six-volume History of the Second World War, read by a Winston Churchill impersonator. Oh, really? It is great. I is have it really? To say, yeah, I have to say, yeah, well, Churchill was a great, a great writer. Okay. Uh, and, you know, you hear Churchill's voice when you read it. You really hear it when you hear a Churchill impersonator reading it. Uh, it's not a great history in that, you know, the victors write the history and all yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah. he's... He's he's self-aggrandizing in it. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of real facts there, but it is just it's a real fascinating read just to sit back and listen to Churchill uh, tell you how we got into that mess, how we almost didn't get through it and how the allies won in the end. Uh, So that's a really fun read. And if you want to go really light, I've got one more history recommendation. Sarah Vowell's Lafayette in the somewhat United States as read by the author. Okay. It's about as funny a piece of history and actually very historically accurate as you can get. I love it. That sounds fascinating. So, so Nick, uh, one, one more book recommendation. Uh, I've sort of read, (laughs) but haven't, haven't read, you know, when I first started working for you, I got an audible subscription specifically to uh, listen to Th- Thomas Piketty's uh, Capital in the 21st Century. Right. Um, and the very next book I listened to in Audible was David Graeber's Debt, which yeah. is this, this really fascinating history of debt over 5,000 years of human history, how we've always used credit, and credit really was the first money long before there were coins or cash or anything like that. Uh, we were a society of debtors and creditors. Unfortunately, the uh, the author, the anthropologist David Graeber, uh, died last year. But coming out is the 10th anniversary edition uh, with an introduction by Thomas Piketty. Uh, so it ties back together my first two books, my Audible subscription coming together as one. Uh, also, uh, just just came out. I uh, haven't had a chance yet to read it. A new book, Democracy, Race, and Justice, The Speeches and Writings of Sadie Alexander, the First Black Economist. Yes. Uh, so there we go, Nick. I think we've given our audience uh, enough books to fill their summer. Well, uh, that's a pretty good list uh, of reading for the summer for anyone. And I hope our uh, I hope our listeners either found us chatting interesting or at least find the books interesting. 
Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.